0: to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin, I'm not an expert, I'm just a person like you, living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. What you choose to do with that information is always your choice. And what works for one may not work for all. Last week, we talked about nutrition with Dr. Peyrovi. Hopefully, you left the episode much more knowledgeable about the topic. We had a great conversation at the flock meeting with Dr. Peyrovi, and all left with great strategies and renewed energy to put toward improving our eating habits. This week, we're going to spend some time talking about sleep. Yes, sleep so elusive for some of us, and yet one of the most important things we can do for good health, especially when living with MS. So let's talk about sleep. First of all, let's look at the benefits of restorative sleep and why on earth we need it. Restorative sleep repairs damaged cells and reproduces healthy cells. It supports our metabolic processes. It allows for optimal daytime functioning of both physical and mental abilities, helping us focus, learn, and remember. It also encourages proper functionality of our central nervous system. Restorative sleep helps us transition new knowledge into long-term memory. It also helps us monitor our emotions and navigate challenges. In fact, sleep deprivation has been linked to many health problems, including depression, reduced immunity, and heart problems. Sleep deprivation also triggers systemic inflammation, increases cortisol levels, increases body fat, contributes to muscle wasting, and reduces anabolic hormone levels, which disrupt the normal functioning of our bodies. In addition, sleep deprivation magnifies any stress on the body and increases our risk for further injury. Most of us likely know about the different stages of sleep, but I'll mention them briefly here. There are five stages of sleep, stages one through four and REM, or rapid eye movement. We enter REM after going through the stages one through four, and we repeat this entire cycle throughout the night, with each complete cycle about 90 to 110 minutes in length. As the night progresses, our time spent in REM increases. Stage one is where we experience light sleep, where we can still easily be awakened. Our muscle activity and eye movements start to slow down. We may also experience muscle contractions, the sensation of falling or jumping during this stage. Stage two. In stage two, our brains start to slow down and our eye movements stop. Stages three and four are very similar. Our brainwaves continue to slow even more, and we have no muscle movement or eye movement. It's more difficult for us to wake during these stages, and if we do, we're often quite groggy. This is also the stage where bedwetting, nightmares, or sleepwalking may occur. After stage four, we go into REM sleep, and this is where the magic happens. Our breathing becomes rapid, shallow, and somewhat irregular. Our heart rate and blood pressure increase. Rapid lateral eye movements occur. Arms and legs become immobilized. And we're less able to regulate our body temperature. When we're awakened from REM sleep, this is when we often remember strange or unusual dreams. REM sleep dreaming occurs up to two hours each night. And it's important to note that when our REM sleep is interrupted one night, our sleep cycle is automatically altered the next time we go to sleep in an attempt to catch up on REM sleep. Isn't that cool? I love how our body tries to heal itself. In our culture of busy, many of us are sleep-deprived, and this becomes a serious issue when our body is trying to thrive, especially when living with a chronic illness like MS. And in fact, chronic sleep deprivation results in increased inflammation and a weakened immune system. So it's really no surprise that many of us with MS struggle so much with sleep. And remember, increased inflammation is connected to cardiovascular disease, stroke, high blood pressure, cancer, autoimmune disease, and weight gain. Sleep deprivation negatively impacts our neurological processes like memory, executive function, emotional processing, and our ability to concentrate or focus or problem solve. Cognitive dysfunction is experienced by at least 50% of people living with MS, constituting a major cause of loss of employment and reduced quality of life. Impairment in verbal and visual memory, executive function, processing speed, and calculation are common, even in people who seem otherwise relatively unaffected by their MS. Interestingly, an emerging body of evidence has linked sleep disturbances to those cognitive dysfunctions in folks living with MS. In addition, sleep deprivation can also cause an increase in psychiatric issues such as anxiety, depression, or bipolar disorder, and make us more vulnerable to substance abuse disorders or even suicidal thoughts. Fatigue is heavily tied to quality of sleep, and with 90% of people with MS struggling with fatigue, it's no wonder so many Mm -hmm. of us also struggle with achieving adequate restorative sleep. Now that we understand why sleep is so important and a general overview of the sleep stages, let's talk a bit about some of the most common reasons we struggle with sleep. About 70 million Americans suffer from sleep disorders, the most common being insomnia, sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, and narcolepsy, which we'll briefly cover here. As you listen, know that if any of these sound familiar, seeing a sleep specialist is highly recommended. Insomnia is a sleep disorder in which people have difficulty falling or staying asleep. People who suffer from insomnia also wake up often during the night and struggle to fall back asleep. Wake up too early in the morning, wake up feeling unrefreshed, and have at least one daytime sleep related problem, such as fatigue, sleepiness, mood, or concentration issues. Insomnia can come and go. It's considered chronic when it occurs at least three nights per week for a month or longer. Insomnia can also happen from what's called overactivation when we might have too much going on in our minds to drift off to sleep. An upsetting event or even general worries can often keep us awake, and worrying about not falling asleep often worsens the problem. Naps can help to re-energize during the day, and yet too much napping can also contribute to nighttime insomnia. It's estimated that at least 40% of people with MS suffer from insomnia. Sleep apnea is a potentially serious sleep disorder that occurs when a person's breathing is irregular or interrupted during sleep. Obstructive sleep apnea is the most common type of sleep apnea and is caused by a blockage of the airway, usually when the tissue in the back of the throat collapses during sleep. People with sleep apnea usually do not have a hard time falling asleep, but their sleep is affected once asleep and the sudden inability to breathe wakes them repeatedly throughout the night, sometimes as frequently as every 30 seconds. Symptoms include snoring, daytime sleepiness, fatigue, and trouble concentrating. In central sleep apnea, the airway is not blocked, but the brain doesn't properly communicate to the body to breathe. Symptoms include gasping for air and frequent awakenings during the night. For those of us living with MS, we may also have additional neuroanatomical risk factors contributing to sleep breathing disorders. For example, brainstem sensory and motor impairments can impact our airway and respiratory drive. Those of us who might have progressive MS or increased disability levels may experience more difficulty breathing well while sleeping. Research shows a strong linkage between brainstem lesions and sleep apnea. So if we have brainstorm lesions and trouble sleeping, seeing a sleep specialist could be a very smart idea. Restless leg syndrome, or RLS, is a sleep disorder that causes intense and often irresistible urges to move the legs, which most often is triggered by lying down or when sitting for prolonged periods of time. It occurs most frequently at night, making it difficult to fall and stay asleep. And the sensations can be described as crawling, itching, burning, tightening, tingling, or creeping. Restless leg syndrome is associated with daytime sleepiness, irritability, and issues with concentration. For folks like us with MS, RLS is three times as common than in the non-MS population, with the rationale that lesions cause damage of our sensory and motor abilities. Other symptoms we experience, like spasticity or cramping, can make it difficult to know what exactly is causing the issue. Because of this and the fact that some medications used to manage MS can worsen RLS symptoms, it's really important that we talk with our doctor if we are experiencing any of these symptoms. Narcolepsy. Narcolepsy is a neurological disorder that affects the control of sleep and wakefulness. So people with narcolepsy often experience excessive daytime sleepiness and intermittent uncontrollable episodes of falling asleep during the day. Narcolepsy can also cause sudden muscle weakness linked to laughter or other emotions. I also want to take some time here to talk a little bit about additional sleep problems that many of us with MS might experience. Since bladder issues are common for folks with MS, many of us need to use the restroom multiple times throughout the night. It's not terribly problematic if we can fall back asleep easily. But it becomes increasingly difficult to achieve restorative sleep when our sleep is interrupted so many times throughout the night. A common solution is to restrict our fluid intake, but that can lead to other problems. So the best method is to drink normally throughout the day and stop intake three hours before sleep, avoiding alcohol and caffeine. We've talked before how common depression can be with MS, and depression can drastically impact our ability to achieve adequate restorative sleep. Depression results in poor sleep and often causes early morning awakening with the inability to fall back asleep. If we're suffering from depression, the most effective treatment is counseling with a professional who understands MS. Spasticity can also impact our ability to sleep well. Spasticity is a common MS symptom characterized by muscles becoming very tight and rigid. It ranges from from uncomfortable to painful and can impact our ability to move our limbs. Physical therapy and specific stretching exercises can significantly help to reduce spasticity. There's also some medications that can help. If that's of interest, chat with your neurologist about it. Sleeping positions can also impact our ability to sleep, since our skin and tissue experiences a great deal of pressure from the weight of our bodies. It's important that we're able to move and change position throughout the night. However, when we move, we wake briefly, and if we're not great sleepers, we might not be able to fall back asleep each time. We also experience more skin and nerve issues, making contact with the bed or bedding potentially painful or irritating. In all the research I did on the intersection of sleep disturbances and MS, one thing was clear. Any of us who experience any daytime impairment or struggle with any aspect of sleep would likely benefit from being evaluated for insomnia. Given the strong association between sleep issues, pain and depression, and the added contribution of spasticity and bladder issues, it's no wonder so many of us struggle with sleep. Now, if none of the above are an issue, what else in our lives can cause sleep to be so elusive? Sometimes our biological clocks and circadian rhythm are off, so we can get off balance easily, especially by working the night shift, staying up very late repeatedly, or varying our sleep schedule drastically over time. In addition, sometimes sensory disruptions of noise or light or temperature can interrupt our sleep. There are many substances that we use that can severely interfere with our ability to obtain restorative sleep, and some of those are alcohol, caffeine, chocolate, and nicotine. A couple interesting facts here. First, heavy smokers tend to be light sleepers. They experience less REM sleep and often wake up after a few hours due to nicotine withdrawal. Alcohol initially helps to induce sleep, but it's light sleep with much less time in deep sleep, which are stages three and four and REM sleep. There's also a lot of medications that can negatively impact our ability to sleep like decongestants, anticonvulsants, stimulants, antidepressants, asthma medications like albuterol, corticosteroids, and blood pressure medications. With so many things in our lives negatively impacting our ability to sleep well, what can we do to help ourselves maximize our restorative sleep? Most sleep experts suggest thinking about the following guidelines as good sleep hygiene. Just like we think about good dental hygiene for our teeth, which is defined as habits and practices that are conducive to maintaining or improving the health of the teeth and gums. So, let's look at some suggestions for sleep hygiene, which we'll similarly define as good habits and practices that are conducive to maintaining or improving the health of our sleep function. Exercise regularly and at least an hour a day. Exercise helps our bodies regulate circadian rhythms, improves energy levels by increasing our mitochondria by number and by functionality to increase energy production during the daytime. Exercise also reduces stress, increases resiliency, putting us in a more relaxed state so we are ready to sleep. Exercising late at night can have a short-term stimulant effect on the body, so finishing exercise at least three hours before bedtime is recommended. Now, with MS, it's important to acknowledge that our definition of exercise might need adjusting, especially if we have limiting factors of heat sensitivity or mobility issues, for example. But even rotating our ankles or wrists is movement, So even if we think of our hour-a-day as deliberate movement, that qualifies as exercise. Eat early in the evening so our digestive processes can function optimally before we go to sleep. Eating a late dinner or snacking before bed activates the digestive system and keeps us awake. If we suffer from GERD, gastroesophageal reflux, or heartburn, it's even more important to avoid eating or drinking before bed as it seriously exacerbates symptoms. Follow a regular schedule as far as when we sleep and when we wake. While it's tempting to sleep late on weekends to catch up on sleep, training our bodies to wake at a consistent time is a great way to combat insomnia. Limit activities we do in bed. Bed is for sleeping and sex, and that's it. If we have sleep issues, it's critical to not create additional habits where we become used to doing things other than sleeping in the bedroom, like watching TV, for instance. These activities often increase our alertness, making it more difficult to obtain quality sleep. Get an hour of sunlight in the morning to warm us up. This facilitates our natural thermoregulation process, aids in cortisol production, and releases serotonin, all things that set us up for good sleep. Work during the day and relax at night, so being intentional with our daily schedule can help support us for a better night's sleep. Avoid napping throughout the day so that we are truly sleepy at night. While napping may seem like a proper way to catch up on some sleep, that's not always the case, as napping can negatively impact the quality of nighttime sleep we get. Naps during the day should be limited to no more than 20 or 30 minutes for optimal sleep at night. We should also refrain from using electronics, yep, even TVs and cell phones, for at least two hours before bed, as blue light stimulates the brain and tells it to stay awake. In contrast, red light stimulates the brain telling it to sleep. An interesting side note here, our smart lights in the area we hang out in the evenings and the lights in our bedroom are programmed as an amber chocolate color. They really do cast a peaceful glow and help me feel sleepy as the day winds to a close. Even if we don't have smart lights, we still can dim the lights at least two hours before bedtime. We should also be sure to stop working, making phone calls, or engaging in any stressful activity at least two hours before bedtime. Meditation during the day to practice clearing our minds. Any efforts towards calming the mind and turning off our thoughts will aid in better sleep at night. Do something fun that is peaceful and relaxing before bed to calm and slow our minds. Reduce noise. Use white noise if we share a bed with a snorer or experience a lot of environmental noise in our bedroom. Keep our bedroom dark, quiet, cool, and comfortable. For most people, the ideal sleeping temperature is 60 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Choose pajamas and bedding that is comfortable on our skin, like some of the cooling products we've talked about in our episode on heat intolerance. Take a lukewarm bath or shower before bed. Try to live within the natural harmonious biorhythms of nature by thoroughly enjoying the four seasons of the 24-hour cycle. Dawn, daytime, dusk, and night. Sit under the stars for 10 minutes, about an hour before bed, to get our minds ready for sleep. Diffuse sleep-inducing essential oils for 30 minutes before going to bed to prepare the bedroom for optimal sleep. Consider using a diffuser with a timer to keep it going throughout the night. Taking time to write down any concerns before bed is a good way to set them aside for the night until the next day. This is an even more powerful strategy when it's done earlier in the evening, perhaps just before or after dinner. Because after reviewing the day and writing our plans for the next day, we can then rest easy, knowing we have a plan in place for the next day, and then can actually better enjoy our relaxation time in the evening before bed, which helps us prepare for sleep even more. The goal is to avoid saving this reflection for when we get into bed. So I'm talking right now to all those fellow worriers I know and love who wait until bedtime to mull over all the things that worry you. If this is a habit for you like it can be for me, take control. I'm not saying stop worrying. But let's try to do it earlier so that we can at least get a full night of much-needed restorative sleep. Read a good old-fashioned paper book. Books aren't as stimulating as electronics and can help us fall asleep, as can guided imagery, meditation, or other biofeedback tools. Eliminating alcohol and stimulants like nicotine and caffeine is important as their effects can last a very long time and these stimulants also cause frequent awakenings during the night. It's important for us to discuss our medications with our doctor as many medications can impact our sleep and we might benefit from changing up our medication schedule to better enhance our sleep. When we get into bed, we can think about pleasant memories from the past, pushing ourselves to remember more and more details about our happy memories. We can also use relaxation therapies and stress reduction methods to relax the mind and body. Progressive muscle relaxation meditations, deep breathing techniques, guided imagery, these are all helpful tools worth trying to see what works well for each of us. Some experts suggest that if we haven't fallen asleep after 20 minutes, we could get out of bed and walk around for a few minutes before trying again. We can also sit in a comfortable chair in a quiet place and read something that is not too stimulating. And if we've tried all of the above and still struggle achieving restorative sleep, there are some non-pharmaceutical sleep aids that are safe and can help for short-term use, like... Cannabis, it reduces anxiety and depression and insomnia. And you can check out our earlier episode dedicated to cannabis to learn more about specific strains as sleep aids. Lavender, which helps reduce anxiety and insomnia. Lemon balm, helps with depression, anxiety, and releasing tension. Valerian, calms the body and mind. Passionflower, reduces worry, exhaustion, and nightmares. Chamomile aids in digestion and induces sleep. Vetiver helps us stay asleep longer rather than waking during the night. Melatonin helps our bodies know when it's time to sleep and wake. Ashwagandha helps manage stress and anxiety levels. And if we're still struggling, participating in Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT, can be helpful in identifying and correcting thoughts and beliefs that might be contributing to insomnia. Whew, that was a long list of tips. Definitely a few I'm going to try adding to my repertoire. How about you? My gratitude this week is for my partner, Eric. He's always looking out for me. And while we don't talk specifically about my MS terribly often because we like it to remain just a small part of who we are, I really appreciate the small acts of service he does to make me feel loved and how he's always on the watch to send me things that will interest or help me. This week was no exception. He shared with me an article written by Will Wheaton related to sleep that he thought I'd find helpful. In case any listeners aren't familiar with the name Will Wheaton, he's an actor, blogger, and writer. You might recognize him from Stand By Me, Star Trek The Next Generation, The Big Bang Theory, or even his awesome YouTube board game show, Tabletop. In this article, Will mentioned reading a post on Tumblr about something called Revenge Bedtime Procrastination which he writes, quote, has a much more beautiful name in Chinese. The literal translation for revenge bedtime procrastination means suffering through the night vengefully. It's a phenomenon unique to people who feel out of control in their daily lives. So they refuse to go to sleep early to exert some control over their lives and to enjoy some quiet time alone when the rest of our people are sleeping. Will goes on to write about how he's always identified as a night owl and struggled to fall asleep as long as he could remember and reading about sleep revenge procrastination helped him finally understand why. Will went on to share more about his life growing up, sharing that he grew up in an environment where he was not in control, nor did he feel very safe or loved. His father was somewhat of a bully who seemed to enjoy mocking him, teasing him, or making him cry, and made him feel certain that his father did not approve of or truly love him, at least not in the unconditional way that most fathers love their children. It was difficult to read Will's accounts of how his father treated his Mm -hmm. other siblings differently. To Will, it felt like his father worshipped his brother, who followed in his father's footsteps and his father was never cruel or dismissive to his sister. He also shared that he felt very alone because his mother did nothing to protect him, and it felt like the family convinced themselves that because his father left no physical marks on Will, that it wasn't abusive behavior. Will was just too sensitive, they said. So what did Will do? I'll share what he wrote verbatim here. Quote, So my waking hours in my childhood home just sucked. When I was a child, I'd retreat into my bedroom and read books, design D&D characters and dungeons, and escape into my imagination. But there was always the threat of that man walking in and mocking me for existing. Fast forward to today, Will shares that he no longer has a relationship with his parents. He's let the hardships go and fully loves his life. He has a great family and career and is generally a very jovial person. Will now believes that as a result of his upbringing, he developed revenge bedtime procrastination, which gave him, and I'll quote him again directly here, quote, Truly free and quiet moments of relief from his cruelty and her manipulation when they were asleep and I was the only person who was awake in the house. That's when I could write, when I could read books, when I could listen to music, when I could exist as a human being who wasn't always afraid. I believe that it's important to remember that the past can impact the future, especially if we have yet to process it fully. In an earlier episode, we talked about the impacts of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, as well as how even things that might not qualify for a numeric score on the ACEs scale still can have a very negative impact on us as we age, and on our likelihood of developing an autoimmune disorder. In fact, research shows that children exposed to ACEs are twice as likely to exhibit sleep disturbances, And the higher the ACEs score, the higher the sleep disturbances reported. There are aspects of Will's experience that I can relate to. I've shared about some of my struggles as a child. And one thing I maybe haven't shared before is that I used to stay up all hours of the night to read. Like Will, it was my escape, my happy place. And that was the rule in our house. We could stay up a little after bedtime as long as we were reading. This was originally a strategy suggested by one of my brother's early elementary school teachers, who was helping my brother, at the time a reluctant reader, learn to enjoy reading. It certainly accomplished that issue, as both my brother and I remain ravenous readers to this day. And yet, it's interesting to think about this concept, especially when I hear other folks with MS also struggling to fall asleep, who have similarly tried all of the typical suggestions to support good sleep habits. Maybe more of us are similar and that we share this struggle with Will. It would make sense since many of us struggle with setting healthy boundaries and often feel like aspects of our lives are out of our control. Before we dig into the research, I will share one more quote from Will. I don't know if, now that I know this is a thing, I can start working to convince myself I don't need that time like I did then, because I am in a house filled with love, shared with a partner who won't ever hurt me. I don't know if I'm going to ever be a person who can fall asleep easily or before the middle of the night, But at least I know why I am the way I am. And that makes me feel a little less alone and broken. (coughs) Bedtime procrastination is defined as failing to go to bed at the intended time while no external circumstances prevent a person from doing so. That last part of the definition while no external circumstances prevent a person from doing so, is very interesting. And for me, this is for sure true. How is it that I can be so tired and ready for bed, and then once I get in bed, struggle to fall asleep? Maybe Will Wheaton is onto something that may help us all. For the remainder of this episode, we're going to dive into some of the emerging research about the intersection of sleep issues, self-regulation, bedtime procrastination, and revenge bedtime procrastination. One part of the issue is certainly overstimulation. We live in a culture of busy. And yet, I wonder if that's really anything new, or if it just looks different now. I love this quote from, get this, 1883 by Paul Lafargue in his book called The Right to Be Lazy. He wrote, Cannot the laborers understand that by overworking themselves they exhaust their own strength and that of their progeny, that they are used up and long before their time come to be incapable of any work at all, that absorbed and brutalized by this single vice they are no longer men but pieces of men, that they kill within themselves all beautiful faculties to leave nothing alive and flourishing except the furious madness for work. This quote is interesting to me on several levels. First, when Paul says, quote, by overworking themselves, they exhaust their own strength and that of their progeny, that they are used up and long before their time come to be incapable of any work at all, quote makes me reflect on my own history as a working professional and my inability to achieve a healthy work-life balance. For over 20 years, I worked close to 80 hours a week. I was always exhausted. In education, like many other fields, our work was never done. The glorious summers off that most non-educators think exist were actually my busiest time, training an entire new cohort of teachers to be ready by August. In fact, by the time I was disability retired, before officially retiring me, I had to use up all of my sick leave that I had never used, which was just shy of a year's worth. When I was first disability retired, I felt a lot of shame and was disappointed in myself that I couldn't keep working. When Eric calculated my hours and shared with me that I had actually worked well over the equivalent of an entire career just in a shorter period of time, it had a huge impact on me and it helped me begin to forgive myself a little, which was an important first step in my journey toward better self-care. The other part of Paul's quote that I find interesting is when he says, quote, They kill within themselves all beautiful faculties to leave nothing alive and flourishing, except the furious madness for work. Incredibly throughout my career, I still found time for family and other relationships, but I do know many educators who are so dedicated to caring for other people's children that they essentially put their own lives outside of work on hold for decades. And their self-worth is tied so tightly to their job that without it, they would feel very lost. I'm grateful I had such a great relationship and epic group of close friends when I was disability retired. Truth be told, I did still have a few very dark months. Literally, thanks to my optic neuritis. It was definitely a change in my life path, and I wasn't sure at the time how to envision my future. A turning point for me was reading a book another dear friend with MS gave me called Pivot, The Only Move That Matters Is Your Next One by Jenny Blake. This book, along with a lot of personal reflection, helped me to see that there were still ways I could have a positive impact on society, even though I was now sidelined from my favorite work of all, coaching teachers. I share this because I believe it's important to be able to be vulnerable and transparent about my journey, and if my story can help others, it's worth sharing. When I was working, I clearly struggled with self-regulation. I didn't stop working at night until I physically couldn't work anymore. I'd sleep three or four hours and start all over again. I would skip meals and often push myself to work through any urges to use the restroom. Looking back now, I can see that I was a full-fledged work martyr, and I used to be one of those people who was oddly proud of the sick time I never used. The President and CEO of the US Travel Association, Roger Dow, notes, people really wear it on their sleeves how they don't take time off. Yep, that was me, and most of the people I knew working in the Silicon Valley. This is something I doubt I would ever have realized without the skilled teacher in my life that is MS. In a 2014 study, insufficient sleep and lack of self-regulation were associated with those who voluntarily put off sleep. The researchers noted that study participants had weaker self-control and little mental energy. In other words, people who tend to have trouble sticking to their intentions, for example, just one more email, or one more game, are also likely to have problems going to bed on time. Another study confirmed that bedtime procrastinators are people with problems with self-regulation, or people who generally have trouble sticking to plans and not giving in to temptations. We know that sufficient sleep improves decision-making, outlook, motivation, problem-solving, and mood which could mean that bedtime procrastination not only causes sleep loss, but could also be a direct effect of sleep loss. So simply put, it's a vicious cycle. So the next time we're tempted to engage in some late night web surfing or other non-essential activity, it would behoove us to remember that the healthiest, most productive, and most worthwhile thing we can do is simply turn out the light and go to bed. So, why might we struggle with self-regulation? It's estimated that just over 10 percent of adults in the general population are chronic procrastinators, so that's definitely a piece of it. Not surprisingly, procrastinators perform more poorly in several areas than their non-procrastinating counterparts, including work activities, academic achievements, and personal finances. In terms of health and wellness, procrastinators also tend to procrastinate on their bedtimes, resulting in poorer health outcomes and higher stress levels, not to mention all the other nasty consequences of insufficient sleep we talked about earlier. It's no wonder that our 24-7, always-open society, with its temptations of continuous connectivity and entertainment, can seem far more exciting than lights out. But when it comes down to it, we have to consider the risk-benefit ratio, with the understanding that the risks of insufficient sleep clearly outweigh the pleasures to be had from staying up, late binge-watching the latest Netflix series, or playing yet another game of Words with Friends. So, how do we break this cycle? In addition to the strategies for good sleep that I shared earlier, here are a few more specifically to help if you may also suffer from bedtime procrastination. First and foremost, set a bedtime. There's a reason parents do this for their children. So why not for ourselves? Every family member needs a set bedtime to ensure we all get the sleep we need. For adults, we can choose a window. Up to an hour as opposed to an on-the-dot bedtime. I can say that Eric and I started going to bed at 10 several years ago and it has helped a ton. In fact it was working really well until this year when I experienced a noticeable increase in anxiety. We slowly worked our way from about 1 a.m. back to 10 p.m. over the course of several months. It got to the point where our dogs would let us know when it was 10 p.m. because it became such a strong habit. For those of us who don't have a reminder like a dog to let us know it's time for bed, we can also set a bedtime reminder on our phone. Speaking of phones, it's also smart to declare a media curfew and unplug an hour before bedtime. As previously mentioned, the blue light from electronics is stimulating and makes us feel more alert. If we do need to go online late at night, we can wear blue light blocking glasses. I can personally attest that this does help. I wear my Neurotint lenses in the evening as they are very soothing to my eyes, which are consistently quite tired by 7 p.m. We can also use night shift, night mode, and do not disturb settings on our devices, which may help as well. I do all of those things, but recently I've realized that it's still having a negative impact on my ability to sleep, so I'm putting myself on blast to listeners that this is something I will be actively working toward improving over the next few weeks. One additional change I will be making is removing my phone from my bedroom and leave it in my office instead. In a recent sleep survey conducted by the National Sleep Foundation One fifth of respondents were woken by their devices during the night and half of those picked them up and further interrupted their sleep. In addition to setting a bedtime, having a bedtime routine can also be helpful and even fun. Bedtime routines help us transition our mind and body from wakefulness to sleep. Preparing for bed at the same time, following the same steps in the same order every night really helps to condition our bodies for sleep. A great tip is to incorporate things non-electronic to do, such as relaxing with a loved one, coloring, sketching, knitting, journaling, yoga, reading, a bubble bath, calming music, puzzles, perusing catalogs, and so on. We have a fun Google routine that automatically tells us the weather for the next day, says goodnight to us, turns off the lights, Sets the thermostat to 68 degrees in the bedroom and plays soothing music for about 45 minutes as we drift off to sleep. All triggered by a simple, okay, Google, good night. Now it's time to look specifically at revenge bedtime procrastination, which researchers believe stems from a lack of self care as priority. As someone who is still learning to prioritize self-care, this is pretty interesting stuff for me to reflect upon, and perhaps for you as well. Revenge bedtime procrastination is the latest term to explain the human rejection of a healthy sleeping schedule. It's a widely used term on the Chinese internet that emerged about four years ago. And Revenge Bedtime Procrastination is different than typical bedtime procrastination or delayed sleep phase syndrome. It's about taking revenge and is indicative of a need to regain the control in our lives. Kind of interesting when we think about all the ways we may feel out of control living with MS. As mentioned before, the literal translation for revenge bedtime Mm. procrastination means suffering through the night vengefully. It describes a trend in which many modern day workers resist sleeping early to seize the freedom of the night hours, even if it brings no obvious benefits. For most working adults, after working hard all day to make a living, going to sleep early can feel even more wasteful of our time. By the time our daily to-dos are complete, it's usually pretty late at night, so the late night hours can easily feel like the only time we have to satisfy our personal needs. Revenge bedtime procrastination is a type of compensation, a psychological strategy that allows us to redirect our frustrations and insecurities. In fact, Freud described compensation as a defense mechanism in which people conceal their feelings of inadequacy or weakness by indulging in another area. Maximizing me time by staying up late is an act of resistance. Against our better instincts, we steal time from our sleep to escape our mundane daytime routines. Since we already know how dangerous sleep deprivation is, especially for folks living with MS, it's important that we become very aware of this phenomenon and actively break the cycle. If we stay up too late, it's impossible to get the seven to nine hours of sleep we need to be our best. Sometimes we may not even be consciously aware of the root cause of our sleep patterns. Staying up late feels like normal behavior when so many people we know share the same habit. If we're vengefully or voluntarily delaying our bedtime despite knowing the consequences, conventional sleep advice just isn't enough. Instead, the answer might be to first examine our life and routines to deduce where our frustrations lie. Only then will we figure out how to seize not just the late night, but also the day. For me, researching this topic was very enlightening. As someone that was caught up in the life of busy for so long, combined with my late-night escapism in childhood, it was helpful to reflect on the past and also plan for a different future. Nowadays, as a disability retired person living with MS, I don't have a lot of things that I have to do. My health is my full-time job. Sure, I have doctor appointments and house and family management tasks, but most of the things I have to do these days are determined by me or self-imposed. Like this podcast, for instance, or my work with Dr. Peyrovi and Anne-Marie to create our True Medicine program, or the social meetup groups I facilitate online, or the local MS group I run, or my book clubs, happy hours, and other regular meetings I organize and attend. I've spoken about this before in other contexts, the open drawer syndrome. Who among us has drawers at home that are completely empty? And the same is true with free time. Do we have it? Not so much. And why? Because we have a tendency to fill things. Anyone have a lot of extra room in their closet? Likely no. So... What I'm working on now is ensuring that everything I'm adding to my plate is very important to me. The reality is that we need some unstructured time in our day to just unwind and do low-energy things. I'm going to actually schedule that now, every day. And as someone who grew up without much leisure time or control over how I spent my daytime hours, it was natural for me for a very long time to fill my time with responsibilities. I internalized and tended to equate leisure time with laziness rather than an essential time to recharge our internal battery or for creativity to thrive. Now that I understand how staying up late was my opportunity to regain some of my lost sense of power, I now better understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it when I stubbornly refuse to go to sleep. And that realization is the first step Of habit change. It's recommended that those of us whom experience revenge bedtime procrastination set stronger daytime boundaries and goals to help us reclaim our days so that we can spend our nights in restorative sleep. When we finally recognize this behavior as an attempt to achieve better balance in our lives, we understand that doing things for ourselves during the day can leave us in a much better place at bedtime. And when it comes down to it, it's all about achieving long-term wellness and learning to live well with MS. There's no quick fix for sleep, but hopefully this episode has given you all as much to think about as it has for me, because nothing is as important at night as sleep. No news article, no YouTube video, no email, not even just one more game of solitaire. (coughs) The last bit I will leave us with today is the power of creating our own personal sleep mantras. Studies have shown that those who practice mindfulness meditation during the day have reduced insomnia, fatigue, and depression compared to those who do not meditate. This makes sense since meditation strengthens our mind's ability to focus on relaxing thoughts, allowing us to calm our racing mind and get some rest. An easy way to focus our mind on relaxation at night is to repeat a phrase over and over. Quite simply, mantras work. There are several factors at play. One of the reasons that simple mantra meditations help us fall asleep is the impact it has on our melatonin levels. Melatonin is our body's natural sleep hormone, which helps us regulate our internal body clock. Secondly, much like the age-old technique of counting sheep, repeating a phrase helps keep our thoughts focused on the present. Repetition helps reduce activity in the cerebral cortex, creating a calming effect. While focusing on our personal mantra, we're less likely to remain tense physically or worry about things that tend to keep us up. Mantras, however, are much more powerful than counting sheep and that they don't keep our minds busy like counting sheep does, but rather helps us focus on positive emotions like peace and tranquility so that we end our day in a positive way and can finally work toward achieving the restorative sleep we so badly need. First, we're going to each need our own sleep mantra. I'm going to share a list of possibilities and yet there's truly no limit. And the most powerful mantras are the ones we create ourselves. So as you listen to the following list, pick a handful that speak to you and inspire calm within you. Or use this list to create one on your own. I personally clumped a handful of ideas into one mantra. But it's important we each pick our own mantras that resonate with us on a deeply personal level. Here are some ideas. I welcome sleep into my being. Nothing is left undone. I am becoming more relaxed with every breath. I let go of what I do not need. The world is sleeping and all is well. My body is a source of calm. I choose to feel at peace. I have enough. I do enough. I am enough. Let it be. All experiences are helping me grow. Where I am is where I am meant to be. Around me and within me, I find stillness. Healing comes in waves. I release all worries and celebrate the possibilities. I am in complete control of my emotions. I am capable. I love and approve of myself. All I need comes when I need it. I am grateful for this time to rest and reset. I am surrounded by love and support. I am comfortable in my own skin. I welcome all forms of positivity into my life. I am here and now. My mind is calm and my body is relaxed. Every heavy thing falls away. I put my thoughts aside in this moment. I breathe in peace and breathe out tension. I enjoy the feeling of stillness. I am free to be in the present. I feel every part of me relaxing. Once we have our own personal sleep mantra, at night when going to sleep, we simply repeat the phrases over and over in our heads to keep our thoughts from straying. By focusing as much of our attention as possible on our sleep mantra's message, we can soothe our troubled minds and fall into deep restorative sleep. Here's my mantra that I will begin using tonight The world is sleeping, and all is well in this moment. I am grateful for this time to rest and reset. I am surrounded by love. I am safe. I have enough. I do enough. I am enough. I breathe in peace and breathe out tension, more relaxed with each breath. Sleep. I welcome you. My hope is that after listening to this episode, we all, one, realize the many benefits of sleep and just how important it is for us to achieve restorative sleep. Two, that we have a deeper understanding of the many types of sleep issues that can prevent us from getting the restorative sleep we need. Three, that we appreciate the importance of strong sleep hygiene and leave this episode with a full toolbox of sleep hygiene strategies. Four, that we acknowledge the importance of reflecting on our own personal sleep habits. And if we find evidence of insomnia, sleep deprivation, or revenge bedtime procrastination, we take active steps in alleviating these harmful behavior patterns. And finally, that we recognize that we have the power within us to achieve better sleep. Sleep is not something that happens to us. It's something we do for ourselves to promote our own wellness. Whether we create our own sleep mantra or choose other strategies that work for us, we have it in us to make sleep and healing a priority, which of course will get us closer to our goal of learning to live well with MS. (coughs) Following this and every podcast, I offer Zoom sessions for our Patreon listeners to discuss the episode's topic together. I hope you will join us. Become a patron on patreon.com msflock for the Zoom session schedule and invitation links. Membership is only $1 a month to access these important flockings and more content. Flock members, I look forward to seeing you Saturday where we can continue the discussion on sleep. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsvlock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we are certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be well. (laughs) Ah! <laughs>